you've been following along in recent weeks, you'll have noticed that we are getting fairly close to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And if we were to try and sum up the emphasis of this book, we could say, I think, it's about the goodness and the wisdom of God's instruction. There's so much here about the blessing of living by God's word and the folly of turning away from his word. But what we find in these later stages of the book is that alongside that message about the goodness of God's instruction, there is quite a bit of pessimism about the likelihood of God's people keeping his instruction. The opening chapters of Deuteronomy recall the many failures of the previous generation to this one. Their disobedience was dealt with in detail. And now, after God's instruction has been presented to the current generation, we might expect to find a few chapters of backslapping and cheerleading. As Moses says to the people, okay, you've heard God's instruction. I want you to know now that I believe in you. You can do it. You're not like your ancestors. You're better than them. I know there's a hero inside all of you. Inside you, there's a victorious obeyer of God's word just waiting to get out. So let it go. Be all that I know you can be. Or something like that. But instead of that kind of glowing optimism, what we find is a pessimism about these people. We get a sense that they're not actually any better than their ancestors. Last week we looked at chapter 28 with its description of the blessings for obedience and its prolonged and detailed description of the curses for disobedience. And chapter 29 follows on from that by giving a distinct sense that what Israel is going to experience in the future are the curses that come because of disobedience. There seems to be an assumption in chapter 29 that Israel will turn their back on God and his instruction. And as a consequence, they will be ejected from their new home eventually and scattered among the nations. So in this book, running alongside the emphasis on the goodness of God's instruction, there is a conviction that human nature is deeply flawed. Inside each of us, there is not a victorious obeyer of God's word just waiting to get out. Inside of each of us, there is a rebel against God's word. And that is a problem. We are called to obey, but it is in our nature to disobey. I say it's a problem, meaning it's a problem from our perspective. It is not a problem from God's perspective. It's not something that takes him by surprise. He has a solution to it. And our passage this morning mentions that solution. And it calls us to confident commitment. Not confidence that is based on our own ability. This is about confidence based on God's ability to overcome our inability. I mentioned a moment ago that chapter 29 envisages a future where Israel will be evicted from the promised land and scattered among other nations. 
That will be the consequence of their disobedience. But the very last verse of chapter 29 belongs actually with chapter 30. It introduces the solution to the problem of Israel's disobedience. So let's read from that verse, chapter 29, verse 29, through to the end of chapter 30. If you haven't found our passage yet, it's on page 208 in the church Bibles, or page 319 in the larger print Bibles. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 29. Moses says to the people, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where He scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, that you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, 
blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is God's word. It divides into two sections, and those two sections are both introduced by chapter 29, verse 29, which seems to be a bit of a cryptic and puzzling verse, if you look at it again. The secret things, Moses says, belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. What does that mean? Well, I think the second part is easy enough for us. The revealed things are the commands and instructions of Deuteronomy. God has revealed his will in his word. His commands and instructions show us what is good. They uncover the way human beings can live wisely and well in God's world. So then, what are the secret things? They are the things God has not revealed. The things that are only known to him. Such as the specific details of his plans for the future. His purposes and his ways of achieving those purposes. God has told us some details about those things. But he has certainly not told us everything about them. And he has his reasons for not telling us everything. So we are to leave those secret things with him. I think that is the general meaning of the secret things mentioned here. They're things that are known only to God. But in the context of the passage we just read, I think Moses has a particular secret thing in mind. What he has in mind, I think, is the mystery of how disobedient human beings with rebellious hearts can become obedient human beings with willing hearts. And without giving us all of the nuts and bolts of how that happens, in chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, Moses tells us God will do it. We can count on it. These verses encourage us to Turn to the Lord and live hopefully. Why? Because he changes his people. The key word in these verses is the word turn or return. In our English Bibles, it's not translated the same way each time. But in Hebrew, the same word pops up all the way through these verses. And in Israel's case, it's a very appropriate word. Because the beginning of chapter 30 looks to a future time when they have been dispersed among the nations. Whatever blessings might have come on them because of a certain amount of obedience, their overwhelming trait by this future point has been shown to be disobedience. And so eventually the curses for disobedience have come on them. They've been evicted from the promised land. This passage assumes all of that has taken place. And the repeated message is, 
Turn to the Lord. Return to him. You can see an example at the beginning of verse 2. When you and your children return to the Lord. Israel is being told, you cannot change the characteristics you inherited from your ancestors. You cannot change your own past. You cannot undo the things you've done. And you cannot fix your own rebellious heart. So, turn to the Lord. Not with arrogance, not trying to negotiate with Him, not trying to excuse yourself. Turn to Him in the midst of your failure and your lostness. Turn to Him as you are in all of your weakness. Turn to Him because you have finally realized He is the one you need in your weakness and your lostness. Turn to Him because you understand and you acknowledge He is the only one with the power to help you. But in this passage, the word turn is not just used of Israel. It's used of the Lord as well. Israel is told, turn to Him and He will turn to you. When verse 3 says, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and gather you again, both times it's the word usually translated turn or return. How is this turning ever going to happen though? How can God turn to these disobedient people? These people whose hearts are no better than their ancestors. Well, the answer comes in verse 6. And for all else that's in these first 10 verses, verse 6 is the core of this whole section. It says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord will change his people. He will change them from the inside out. He will do something new. He will make them new. The practice of circumcision has been mentioned previously in Deuteronomy. And we noticed then the practice was not unique to Israel. But God gave it a unique significance with regard to Israel. God chose circumcision as a sign of his covenant with them. At first, that sign was an external mark on the male body. But in Deuteronomy, God says, ultimately, I will circumcise my people. It will cease to be a mark that parents put on their sons' bodies. It will be a mark I put on all of my people, male and female. And it won't be just an external mark. It will be a change at the core of who you are. Just as physical circumcision cut away the barrier around a part of the male body, so my circumcision, God says, will cut away the barrier around my people's hearts. I will remove their hard-heartedness. I will enable them to love me from the heart. So this promise to circumcise people's hearts, it's a promise to give them a fundamentally different orientation. 
from an orientation of rebellion against God to a delight in doing his will. Now, surrounding this promise about what God will do, verses 1 to 10 also mention Israel obeying God. These verses mention the prosperity that ultimately comes from obeying God. And that will be emphasized in verses 11 to 20. But here in verses 1 to 10, the people's obedience actually is in the background. The focus in this section is on what God will do to enable his people's obedience. These are verses then of hope. Hope for cursed people. People who've experienced the wages of sin in their lives. They have found their sinful lives to be a living death. And now these verses bring hope. However rebellious you have been in the past, whatever junk has come into your life because of disobedience, whatever miserable place sin has taken you to, no matter if you've made a thousand resolutions to be a better person and failed every single time, no matter if you've tried everything imaginable to pull yourself up by your bootlaces and get your life on track and make improvements, no matter if you've lived a lifetime of trying to sort yourself out and got nowhere, If you will turn to the Lord, believing his promise that he will get you somewhere, if you'll take that step of humble desperation, he will change you in a way you could never change yourself. He will change you at the center of who you are. Turn to him and you can begin to live hopefully. Because you have God's promise. However weak you are, however messed up you are, however tangled up in sin you are, He will change you. Not in a shallow, superficial way, but in the deepest possible way. That's God's promise. That's what God does when we recognize our sin and our need and we turn to Him. What is not explained here is how God will bring about this circumcision of the heart. In the context of this passage, it is one of the secret things God has not revealed. He's promised to do it, and that's enough. That's enough to give hope to lost, scattered people. But as the Old Testament progresses, this new thing God has promised begins to become a little bit clearer. Through the various writers of Scripture, God drip feeds more information about his plans to circumcise hearts. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel refer to it as a new covenant. We heard some of Jeremiah's words from that, about that earlier. And then finally, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ reveals the secret of how God will make people new. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus says he will shed his blood as a seal of God's new covenant. His death will bring about not only forgiveness of sin for those who trust in him, but those men and women will also receive a new orientation of heart. 
a new love for God, and a new will to obey his instruction. And so the Apostle Paul can write to those who trust in Jesus, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. New creation, new covenant, circumcision of the heart, whatever description we use for God's work to change his people, it happens, the New Testament says, in Christ, through Christ. And so today, the secret is out finally. Not all of God's secrets are out yet, but the secret is out when it comes to how God changes us. As we give up our own delusions of strength and trust in Jesus, we can begin to live hopefully, knowing that in Christ he changes his people. Now at this point we might say, well, that's good for us, but it wasn't so good for these Israelites living 1,400 years before Jesus. They didn't know about him. And they would certainly not live to see him. So surely the promise of Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 is a pie in the sky promise for them. It doesn't help them. Actually that is not the case. They are invited here to turn to God in faith that he will fulfill his promise. And the evidence of the New Testament is that God acted on the basis of that faith in his promise. Those who turned to him in hope were changed. Have a look sometime at Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. It's full of Old Testament men and women who never saw Jesus, but they trusted God's promise, and on the basis of that, they were given new hearts in their time to love and serve God in their generation. They didn't know the full secret of the new hearts that God gave them, but they turned to God in hope and they were changed all the same. But maybe though you have a different problem with all of this. Maybe you're not so bothered about the Israelite situation. Maybe you're thinking, I have turned to the Lord and I'm as big a failure as I ever was. I don't feel like a new creation. I feel like an old creation that hasn't had so much as a facelift. Never mind a new heart. You might be thinking, my heart is still cold, stubborn, and wayward most of the time. So how can I live hopefully? I can't see that God has changed me at all. Well, here's another secret the New Testament reveals about God's work in his people. It is not the work of an instant. Yes, it begins in an instant. There is, the New Testament says, a crossing over from death to life. There is a moment when we turn to Jesus and new life begins in us. But the New Testament mainly speaks about God's work in our hearts as a process. It says we are being renewed inwardly. It says the one who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. 
So actually, it would be a very big problem this morning if any of us thought God had finished his new creation work in us. The New Testament says he hasn't. Maybe we expected the Christian life to be easy, or we expected it to be hard for a while, and then maybe we thought we would break through to some sort of battle-free Christian life with no more struggles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the New Testament doesn't promise that. So maybe our conclusion that we're making no progress is due to a false idea about progress. The idea that progress means things will get easier. The New Testament tells us we receive new life when we trust in Jesus. And then God begins working to make us more like Jesus. And that work goes on until we finally meet Jesus. So let's not get discouraged by how far we still have to go. Let's turn to the Lord and live hopefully, believing his promise that he does change his people. If you're not yet a Christian, that means you need to turn to him for the first time to begin this new life in Christ. If you are a Christian, the call is to keep turning to him every day. And whether we're at the start of this process or getting close to the end because we reckon we're going to see Jesus pretty soon, whatever stage of the process we're at, we can all live life hopefully because of God's promise to change those who turn to him. We noticed earlier that while the focus of verses 1 to 10 was on God's work to change his people, the call to obey God's word didn't disappear in those verses. It was there just as it has been all through this long book. And now, in the second section of our passage, it's clear that God's work in us is not intended to take away our responsibility. We don't ever put our hope in our work our confidence is in what God does. But we are always called to commitment. To listen to the Lord and live faithfully. Because his call to obedience does not change. And because verses 11 to 20 follow verses 1 to 10, we can be hopeful as we commit to live faithfully. In verse 11, you can see how Moses wants the Israelites to be confident that they can obey. Verse 11, he says, Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, Who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, Who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No. The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. You've probably come across the kind of story where a person is seeking enlightenment. And in order to find it, they end up crossing great oceans, swimming across rivers, 
and finally climbing a high mountain to meet some sort of wise guru in a robe. Now the point of those kind of stories is that enlightenment or understanding comes at the end of a long and epic quest. And those sort of stories were around in the ancient world as well. They're not new. And those stories send the message that the most important knowledge is the hardest to find. But God's people need to know true wisdom is not hard to find. It does not require an epic quest to to a faraway mountaintop. Nor does it require a dive into the depths of our own soul to get in touch with spiritual realities down there somewhere. No quest is needed, the Bible says. God has revealed the wisdom his people need. It's not a secret. In fact, he went to great lengths to provide it for us in the pages of Scripture. That's what Moses means when he says, uh, speaks in verse 11 about what I am commanding you today. He means the words of Deuteronomy. And they, along with the rest of Scripture, are the knowledge we need to live for God and live well in his world. We don't have to climb up to heaven to get it. We don't have to cross the sea to find it. It's right here in our hands. In Israel's case, it was to be written on the big pillars we heard about in chapter 27, so everyone could access it. And chapter 31 will tell us the Levites are to read it regularly to the people as well. And it's significant that this reminder of the accessibility of God's word comes after the promise back in verse 6. That God will change the hearts of his people so they can put his word into practice. That promise gives us confidence when we hear this new call to obedience. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence that as we commit to listen to God and live faithfully, he will carry on his work in us. This word that is in our hands will increasingly be worked out in our lives. And so here, as Moses goes on to repeat the challenge of previous chapters, the challenge we've heard dozens of times in this book about choosing obedience instead of disobedience, as he repeats that in verses 15 to 18, there is, though, a different, more hopeful feel to this. Look how that comes out in the final verses, verses 19 and 20. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Listening to God and obeying him is a way of life. And we must make a daily commitment to live, listen and obey. It must become our way of life. And that's why at the end of verse 19, Moses says, 
Now choose life. Choose to listen and obey the Lord today. However faithful or unfaithful you were yesterday, choose life today. And choose it again tomorrow. That's what it means to live faithfully. We don't rely on yesterday's successes, nor do we give up because of yesterday's failures. We repent of yesterday's failures. We refuse to become proud because of yesterday's successes. And we choose to live in obedience to God today. This day, because He is our life. And we make that daily commitment with confidence. Because we are people who have turned to the Lord, recognizing our need of Him, recognizing that in Jesus Christ, He has provided the answer to our need. And having turned to Him, we believe His promise that He works in us, changing us from the inside out. We take confidence from His promise to renew us. And today we once again choose to listen to him and obey him. Because we love him and we want to be like him. As we close, listen to how the letter of 1 John takes the message of Deuteronomy 30 and puts it into New Testament words for us. John says, to those who have trusted in Jesus, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Through faith in Jesus, we are children of God. He will make us like Jesus. And in the meantime, we live with a commitment to purify ourselves by living according to his word. Let's ask for God's help. Father, whatever aspect of this passage each of us needs to hear this morning, will you cause that to get through to us? If we have been laboring away trying to build a monument to our own strength and our own ability, if that has been our approach and our hope, will you show us this morning how fragile that is, how it always crumbles away in the end? Will you show us that only you can make something of our lives? Starting with the center as you remake our hearts. If we've been trying to fix ourselves, will you bring us to your son Jesus to receive new life? And if as Christians 
We're burdened down with our own failures. Maybe even very recent failures. If that is our situation this morning, a situation possibly nearly of despair, will you bring us back to put our hope again in your renewing work? Will you give us new confidence in your ability to finish what you have started in our hearts? Will you refresh us with this confidence in you? And every day we commit ourselves to choose life. We choose to let your word rule over us in every situation. Lord, hear our prayer and help us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Our final songs focus on God's work in us and they ask him to continue that work. Who is there like you? And then, O Lord, who came from realms above.